Lectures of Colonel Robert Green Ingersoll, Chapter 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ingersoll's Lecture on Thomas Paine, Part 2 of 2. The next question is, did Thomas Paine recant? Mr. Paine had prophesied that fanatics would crawl and cringe around him during his last moments. He believed that they would put a lie in the mouth of death. When the shadow of the coming dissolution was upon him, two clergymen, Messrs. Milledollar and Cunningham, called to annoy the dying man. Mr. Cunningham had the politeness to say, You have now a full view of death. You cannot live long. Whoever does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will assuredly be damned. Mr. Paine replied, Let me have none of your popish stuff. Get away with you. Good morning. On another occasion a Methodist minister obtruded himself. Mr. Willett Hicks was present. The minister declared to Mr. Paine that, unless he repented of his unbelief, he would be damned. Paine, although at the door of death, rose in his bed and indignantly requested the clergyman to leave the room. On another occasion two brothers by the name of Piggott sought to convert him. He was displeased and requested their departure. Afterward Thomas Nixon and Captain Daniel Pelton visited him for the express purpose of ascertaining whether he had in any manner changed his religious opinions. They were assured by the dying man that he still held the principles he had expressed in his writings. Afterward, these gentlemen, hearing that William Cobbett was about to write a life of pain, sent him the following note. I must tell you now that it is of great importance to find out whether pain recanted. If he recanted, then the Bible is true. You can rest assured that a spring of water gushed out of a dead dry bone. If pain recanted, there is not the slightest doubt about that donkey making that speech to Mr. Balaam. Not the slightest. And if pain did not recant, then the whole thing is a mistake. I want to show that Thomas Paine died as he has lived, a friend of man and without superstition, and if you will stay here I will do it. New York, April 21, 1818. Sir, having been informed that you have a design to write a history of the life and writings of Thomas Paine, if you have been furnished with materials in respect to his religious opinions, or rather of his recantation of his former opinions before his death, all you have heard of his recanting is false. Being aware that such reports would be raised after his death by fanatics who infested his house at the time it was expected he would die, we the subscribers, intimate acquaintances of Thomas Paine, since the year 1776, went to his house. He was sitting up in a chair and apparently in full vigor and use of all his mental faculties. We interrogated him upon his religious opinions, and if he had changed his mind, or repented of anything he had said or wrote on that subject. He answered, not at all, and appeared rather offended at our supposition that any change should take place in his mind. We took down in writing the questions put to him and his answers thereto before a number of persons then in his room, among whom were his doctor, Mrs. Bonneville, etc., this paper is mislaid and cannot be found at present, but the above is the substance, which can be attested by many living witnesses. 
Thomas Nixon, Daniel Pelton. Mr. Jarvis, the artist, saw Mr. Paine one or two days before his death. To Mr. Jarvis he expressed his belief in his written opinions upon the subject of religion. B. F. Haskin, an attorney of the city of New York, also visited him, and inquired as to his religious opinions. Paine was then upon the threshold of death, but he did not tremble. He was not a coward. He expressed his firm and unshaken belief in the religious ideas he had given to the world. Dr. Manley was with him when he spoke his last words. Dr. Manley asked the dying man, and Dr. Manley was a Christian, if he did not wish to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and the dying philosopher answered, I have no wish to believe on that subject. Amasa Woodworth sat up with Thomas Paine the night before his death. In 1839, Gilbert Vale, hearing that Wordsworth was living in or near Boston, visited him for the purpose of getting his statement, and the statement was published in the Beacon of June 5, 1830, and here it is. We have just returned from Boston. One object of our visit to that city was to see Mr. Amasa Woodsworth, an engineer now retired in a handsome cottage and garden at East Cambridge, Boston. This gentleman owned the house occupied by Payne at his death, while he lived next door. As an act of kindness, Mr. Woodsworth visited Mr. Payne every day for six weeks before his death. He frequently sat up with him, and did so on the last two nights of his life. He was always there with Dr. Manley, the physician, and assisted in removing Mr. Payne while his bed was prepared. He was present when Dr. Manley asked Mr. Payne if he wished to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He said that lying on his back he used some action, and with much emphasis replied, I have no wish to believe on that subject. He lived some time after this, but was not known to speak, for he died tranquilly. He accounts for the insinuating style of Dr. Manley's letter by stating that that gentleman, just after its publication, joined a church. He informs us that he has openly proved the doctor for the falsity contained in the spirit of that letter, boldly declaring before Dr. Manley, who is still living, that nothing which he saw justified the insinuations. Mr. Woodsworth assures us that he neither heard nor saw anything to justify the belief of any mental change in the opinions of Mr. Payne previous to his death, but that being very ill and in pain, chiefly arising from the skin being removed in some parts by his long lying, he was generally too uneasy to enjoy conversation on abstract subjects. This, then, is the best evidence that can be procured on this subject and we publish it while the contravening parties are yet alive, and with the authority of Mr. Woodsworth, Gilbert Vale. A few weeks ago I received the following letter, which confirms the statement of Mr. Vale. Near Stockton, California, Greenwood Cottage, July ninth, 1877. Colonel Ingersoll, in 1812 I talked with a gentleman in Boston. I have forgotten his name, but he was then an engineer of the Charleston Navy Yard. I am thus particular so that you can find his name on the books. He told me that he nursed Thomas Paine in his last illness and closed his eyes when dead. I asked him if he recanted and called upon God to save him. He replied, No. He died as he had taught. He had a sore upon his side, and when we turned him it was very painful, and he would cry out, O oh God, or something like that. 
But, said the narrator, that was nothing, for he believed in a God. I told him that I had often heard it asserted from the pulpit that Mr. Paine had recanted in his last moment. The gentleman said that it was not true, and he appeared to be an intelligent, truthful man. With respect, I remain, etc., Philip Graves, M.D. The next witness is Willet Hicks, a Quaker preacher. He says that during the last illness of Mr. Paine he visited him almost daily, and that Paine died firmly convinced of the truth of the religious opinions that he had given to his fellow men. It was to this same Willet Hicks that Paine applied for permission to be buried in the cemetery of the Quakers. Permission was refused. This refusal settles the question of recantation. If he had recanted, of course, there would have been no objection to his body being buried by the side of the best hypocrites in the earth. If Paine recanted, why should he be denied a little earth for charity? Had he recanted, it would have been regarded as a vast and splendid triumph for the gospel. It would, with much noise and pomp and ostentation, have been heralded about the world. Here is another letter. Peoria, Illinois, October 8, 1877. Robert G. Ingersoll, esteemed friend. My parents were friends, Quakers. My father died when I was very young. The elderly and middle-aged friends visited at my mother's house. We lived in the city of New York. Among the number I distinctly remember, Elias Hicks, Willett Hicks, and a Mr. Day, who was a bookseller in Pearl Street. There were many others whose names I do not now remember. The subject of the recantation of Thomas Paine of his views about the Bible in his last illness, or any other time, was discussed by them in my presence at different times. I learned from them that some of them had attended upon Thomas Paine in his last sickness, and ministered to his wants up to the time of his death, and upon the question of whether he did recant there was but one expression. They all said that he did not recant in any manner. I often heard them say they wished he had recanted. In fact, according to them, the nearer he approached death, the more positive he appeared to be in his convictions. These conversations were from 1820 to 1822. I was at that time from ten to twelve years old, but these conversations impressed themselves upon me because many thoughtless people then blamed the Society of Friends for their kindness to that arch-infidel Thomas Paine. Truly yours, A. C. Hankinson. A few days ago I received the following. Albany, New York, September twenty-seventh, 1877. Dear Sir, it is over twenty years ago that professionally I made the acquaintance of John Hodgeboom, a justice of the peace of the county Rensselaer, New York. He was then over seventy years of age, and had the reputation of being a man of candor and integrity. He was a great admirer of Paine. He told me he was personally acquainted with him, and used to see him frequently during the last years of his life in the city of New York, where Hodgeboom then resided. I asked him if there was any truth in the charge that Paine was in the habit of getting drunk. He said that it was utterly false, that he had never heard of such a thing during the lifetime of Mr. Paine, and did not believe any one else did. I asked him about the recantation of his religious opinions on his deathbed, and the revolting deathbed scenes that the world heard so much about. He said there was no truth in them, that he had received his information from persons who attended pain in his last illness, and that he passed peacefully, as we may say, in the sunshine of a great soul. Yours truly, W. J. Hilton. 
the witnesses by whom i substantiate the fact that thomas paine did not recant and that he died holding the religious opinions he had published are one thomas nixon captain daniel pelton b f haskin these gentlemen visited him during his last illness for the purpose of ascertaining whether he had in any respect changed his views upon religion he told them that he had not two james cheatham this man was the most malicious enemy mr paine had and yet he admits that thomas paine died placidly and almost without a struggle life of thomas paine by james cheatham three the ministers milledollar and cunningham these gentlemen told mr paine that if he died without believing in the lord jesus christ he would be damned and paine replied let me have none of your popish stuff good morning sherwin's life of paine page two twenty four mrs hedden she told these same preachers when they attempted to obtrude themselves upon mr paine again that the attempt to convert mr paine was useless that if god did not change his mind no human power could five andrew a dean this man lived upon paine's farm at new rochelle and corresponded with him upon religious subjects paine's theological works page three o eight six mr jarvis the artist with whom paine lived he gives an account of an old lady coming to paine and telling him that god almighty had sent her to tell him that unless he repented and believed in the blessed Saviour, he would be damned. Paine replied that God would not send such a foolish old woman with such an impertinent message. Cleo Rickman's Life of Paine. 7. William Carver, with whom Paine boarded. Mr. Carver said again and again that Paine did not recant. He knew him well and had every opportunity of knowing. Life of Paine by Vale. 8. Dr. Manley, who attended him in his last sickness, and to whom Paine spoke his last words. Dr. Manley asked him if he did not wish to believe in Jesus Christ, and he replied, I have no wish to believe on that subject. 9. Willett Hicks and Elias Hicks, who were with him frequently during his last sickness, and both of whom tried to persuade him to recant. According to their testimony, Mr. Paine died as he lived, a believer in God, and a friend to man. Willett Hicks was offered money to say something false against Paine. He was even offered money to remain silence, and allow others to slander the dead. Mr. Hicks, speaking of Thomas Paine, said, He was a good man. Thomas Paine was an honest man. 10. Amasa Woodsworth, who was with him every day for some six weeks immediately preceding his death, and sat up with him the last two nights of his life. This man declares that Paine did not recant, and that he died tranquilly. The evidence of Mr. Woodsworth is conclusive. 11. Thomas Paine himself. The will of Mr. Paine, written by himself, commences as follows. The last will and testament of me, the subscriber, Thomas Paine, reposing confidence in my Creator God, and in no other being, for I know of no other, nor believe in any other, and closes with these words, I have lived an honest and useful life to mankind. My time has been spent in doing good, and I die in perfect composure and resignation to the will of my Creator God. 
twelve if thomas paine recanted why do you pursue him if he recanted he died in your belief for what reason then do you denounce his death as cowardly if upon his deathbed he renounced the opinions he had published the business of defaming him should be done by infidels not by christians i ask christians if it is honest to throw away the testimony of his friends the evidence of fair and honorable men and take the putrid words of avowed and malignant enemies when thomas paine was dying he was infested by fanatics by the snaky spies of bigotry in the shadows of death were the unclean birds of prey waiting to tear with beak and claw the corpse of him who wrote the rights of man and there lurking and crouching in the darkness were the jackals and hyenas of superstition ready to violate his grave these birds of prey these unclean beasts are the witnesses produced and relied upon to malign the memory of thomas paine one by one the instruments of torture have been wrenched from the cruel clutch of the church until within the armory of orthodoxy there remains but one weapon slander against the witnesses that i have produced there can be brought just two mary roscoe and mary hinsdale the first is referred to in the memoir of stephen grellet she had once been a servant in his house grellet tells what happened between this girl and Payne. According to this account, Paine asked her if she had ever read any of his writings, and on being told that she had read very little of them, he inquired what she thought of them, adding that from such a one as she, he expected a correct answer. Let us examine this falsehood. Why would Paine expect a correct answer about his writings from one who read very little of them? Does not such a statement devour itself? this young lady further said that the age of reason was put in her hands and that the more she read in it the more dark and distressed she felt and that she threw the book into the fire whereupon mr paine remarked i wish all had done as you did for if the devil ever had any agency in my work he had in my writing that book the next is mary hinsdale she was a servant in the family of willet hicks the church is always proving something by a nurse she like mary roscoe was sent to carry some delicacy to mr paine to this young lady paine according to his account said precisely the same thing that he did to mary roscoe and she said the same thing to mr paine my own opinion is that mary roscoe and mary hinsdale are one and the same person or the same story has been by mistake put in the mouths of both it is not possible that the identical conversation should have taken place between Payne and Mary Roscoe, and between him and Mary Hinsdale. Mary Hinsdale lived with Willet Hicks, and he pronounced her story a pious fraud and fabrication. Another thing about this witness, a woman by the name of Mary Lockwood, a Hicksite Quaker, died mary hinsdale met her brother about that time and told him that his sister had recanted and wanted her to say so at her funeral this turned out to be a lie it has been claimed that mary hinsdale made her statement to charles collins long after the alleged occurrence gilbert vale one of the biographers of paine had a conversation with collins concerning mary hinsdale vale asked him what he thought of her he replied that some of the friends believed that she used opiates, 
and that they did not give credit to her statements. He also said that he believed what the friends said, but thought that when a young Roman she might have told the truth. In 1818 William Cobbett came to New York. He began collecting material for a life of Thomas Paine. In this way he became acquainted with Mary Hinsdale and Charles Collins. Mr. Cobbett gave a full account of what happened in a letter addressed to the Norwich Mercury in 1819. From this account it seems that Charles Collins told Cobbett that Paine had recanted. Cobbett called for the testimony and told Mr. Collins that he must give time, place, and circumstances. He finally brought a statement that he stated had been made by Mary Hinsdale. Armed with this document, Cobbett, in October of that year, called upon the said Mary Hinsdale at number 10 Anthony Street, New York, and showed her the statement. Upon being questioned by Mr. Cobbett, she said that it was so long ago that she could not speak positively to any part of the matter, that she would not say that any part of the paper was true, that she had never seen the paper, and that she had never given Charles Collins authority to say anything about the matter in her name. And so in the month of October, in the year of grace, 1818, in the midst of fog and forgetfulness, disappeared forever one Mary Hinsdale, the last and only witness against the intellectual honesty of Thomas Paine. A letter was written to the editor of the New York World by Reverend A. W. Cornell, in which he says, Sir, I see by your paper that Bob Ingersoll discredits Mary Hinsdale's story of the scenes which occurred at the deathbed of Thomas Paine. No one who knew that good old lady would for one moment doubt her veracity or question her testimony. Both she and her husband were Quaker preachers and well-known and respected inhabitants of New York City. Ingersoll is right in his conjecture that Mary Roscoe and Mary Hinsdale were the same person. Her maiden name was Roscoe, and she married Henry Hinsdale. My mother was a Roscoe, a niece of Mary Roscoe, and lived with her for some time. Reverend A. W. Cornell, Harpersville, New York. The editor of the New York Observer took up the challenge that I had thrown down. I offered one thousand dollars in gold to any minister who would prove, or to any person who would prove, that Thomas Paine recanted in his last hours. The New York Observer accepted the wager, and then told a falsehood about it. But I kept after the gentlemen until I forced them, in their paper, published on the 1st of November, 1877, to print these words. We have never stated in any form, nor have we ever supposed, that Paine actually renounced his infidelity. The accounts agree in stating that he died a blaspheming infidel. This, I hope, for all coming time will refute the slanders of the churches yet to be. The next charge they make is that Thomas Paine died in destitution and want. That, of course, would show that he was wrong. They boast that the founder of their religion had not whereon to lay his head. But when they found a man who stood for the rights of man, when they say that he did, that is an evidence that this doctrine was a lie. Won't do. Did Thomas Paine die in destitution and want? The charge has been made over and over again that Thomas Paine died in want and destitution, that he was an abandoned pauper, an outcast, without friends and without money. This charge is just as false as the rest. Upon his return to this country in 1802, he was worth $30,000, according to his own statement, made at that time in the following letter, and addressed to Cleo Rickman. 
my dear friend mr monroe who is appointed minister extraordinary to france takes charge of this to be delivered to mr este banker in paris to be forwarded to you i arrived in baltimore thirtieth of october and you can have no idea of the agitation which my arrival occasioned from new hampshire to georgia an extent of fifteen hundred miles every newspaper was filled with applause or abuse my property in this country has been taken care of by my friends and is now worth six thousand pounds sterling which put in the funds will bring about four hundred sterling a year remember me in affection and friendship to your wife and family and in the circle of your friends thomas paine a man in those days worth thirty thousand dollars was not a pauper that amount would bring an income of at least two thousand dollars two thousand dollars then would be fully equal to five thousand dollars now on the twelfth of july eighteen o nine the year in which he died mr paine made his will from this instrument we learn that he was the owner of a valuable farm within twenty miles of new york he was also owner of thirty shares in the new york phoenix insurance company worth upward of fifteen hundred dollars besides this some personal property and ready money by his will he gave to walter morton and thomas addis emmett a brother of robert emmett two hundred dollars each and one hundred dollars to the widow of elihu palmer is it possible that this will was made by a pauper by a destitute outcast by a man who suffered for the ordinary necessities of life but suppose for the sake of argument that he was poor and that he died a beggar does that tend to show that the bible is an inspired book and that calvin did not burn servetus do you really regard poverty as a crime if paine had died a millionaire would christians have accepted his religious opinions if paine had drank nothing but cold water would christians have repudiated the five cardinal points of calvinism does an argument depend for its force upon the pecuniary condition of the person making it as a matter of fact most reformers most men and women of genius have been acquainted with poverty beneath a covering of rags have been found some of the tenderest and bravest hearts owing to the attitude of the churches the last fifteen hundred years truth-telling has not been a very lucrative business as a rule hypocrisy has worn the robes and honesty the rags that day is passing away you cannot now answer a man by pointing at the holes in his coat thomas paine attacked the church when it was powerful when it had what is called honors to bestow when it was the keeper of the public conscience when it was strong and cruel the church waited till he was dead then attacked his reputation and his clothes once upon a time a donkey kicked a lion the lion was dead you just don't know how happy i am tonight that justice so long delayed at last is going to be done and to see so many splendid-looking people come here out of deference to the memory of thomas paine i am glad to be here the next thing is did thomas paine live the life of a drunken beast and did he die a drunken cowardly and beastly death well we will see upon you rests the burden of substantiating these infamous charges the christians have i suppose produced the best evidence in their possession and that evidence i will now proceed to examine their first witness is grant thorburn 
he made three charges against Thomas Paine. One, that his wife obtained a divorce from him in England for cruelty and neglect. Two, that he was a defaulter and fled from England to America. Three, that he was a drunkard. These three charges stand upon the same evidence, the word of Grant Thorburn. If they are not all true, Mr. Thorburn stands impeached. The charge that Mrs. Paine obtained a divorce on account of the cruelty and neglect of her husband is utterly false. There is no such record in the world and never was. Paine and his wife separated by mutual consent. Each respected the other. They remained friends. This charge is without any foundation. In fact, I challenge the Christian world to produce the record of this decree of divorce. According to Mr. Thorburn, it was granted in England. In that country, public records are kept of all such degrees. I will give $1,000 if they will produce a decree showing that it was given on account of cruelty, or admit that Mr. Thorburn was mistaken. Thomas Paine was a just man. Although separated from his wife, he always spoke of her with tenderness and respect, and frequently lent her money without letting her know the source from whence it came. Was this the conduct of a drunken beast? The next is that he was a defaulter and fled from England to America. As I told you in the first place, he was an exciseman. If he was a defaulter, that fact is upon the records of Great Britain. I will give one thousand in gold to any man who will show, by the records of England, that he was a defaulter of a single solitary cent. Let us bring these gentlemen to Limerick. And they charge that he was a drunkard. That is another falsehood. He drank liquor in his day, as did the preachers. It was no unusual thing for a preacher going home to stop at a tavern and take a drink of hot rum with a deacon, and it was no unusual thing for the deacon to help the preacher home. You have no idea how they loved the sacrament in those days. They had communion pretty much all the time. Thorburn says that in 1802 Paine was an old remnant of mortality, drunk, bloated, and half asleep. Can any one believe this to be a true account of the personal appearance of Mr. Paine in 1802? He had just returned from France. He had been welcomed home by Thomas Jefferson, who had said that he was entitled to the hospitality of every American. In 1802, Mr. Paine was honored with a public dinner in the city of New York. He was called upon and treated with kindness and respect by such men as DeWitt Clinton. In 1806, Mr. Paine wrote a letter to Andrew A. Dean upon the subject of religion. Read that letter, and then say that the writer of it was an old remnant of mortality, drunk, bloated, and half asleep. Search the files of Christian papers from the first issue to the last, and you will find nothing superior to this letter. In 1803, Mr. Paine wrote a letter of considerable length and of great force to his friend Samuel Adams. Such letters are not written by drunken beasts, nor by remnants of old mortality, nor by drunkards. It was about the same time that he wrote his remarks on Robert Hall's sermons. These remarks were not written by a drunken beast, but by a clear-headed and thoughtful man. In 1804 he published an essay on the invasion of England and a treatise on gunboats, full of valuable maritime information. In 1805 a treatise on yellow fever suggesting modes of prevention. 
In short, he was an industrious and thoughtful man. He sympathized with the poor and oppressed of all lands. He looked upon monarchy as a species of physical slavery. He had the goodness to attack that form of government. He regarded the religion of his day as a kind of mental slavery. He had the courage to give his reasons for his opinion. His reasons filled the churches with hatred. Instead of answering his arguments, they attacked him. Men who were not fit to blacken his shoes blackened his character. There is too much religious cant in the statement of Mr. Thorburn. He exhibits too much anxiety to tell what Grant Thorburn said to Thomas Paine. He names Thomas Jefferson as one of the disreputable men who welcome Paine with open arms. The testimony of a man who regarded Thomas Jefferson as a disreputable person, as to the character of anybody, is utterly without value. Now, Grant Thorburn, this gentleman who was four feet and a half high, and who weighed ninety-eight pounds three and one-half ounces, says that he used to sit nights at Carver's in New York City with Thomas Paine. Mrs. Ferguson, the daughter of William Carver, says that she knew Thorburn when she saw him, but that she never saw him in her father's house. The denial of Mrs. Ferguson enraged Thorburn, and he at once wrote a few falsehoods about her. Thereupon a suit was commenced by Mrs. Ferguson and her husband against Thorburn, the writer, and Fanshawe, the publisher of the libel. Thorburn ran away to Connecticut. Fanshawe wrote him for evidence of what he had written. Thorburn replied that what he had written about Mrs. Ferguson could not be proved. Fanshawe then settled with the Fergusons, paying them the amount demanded. In 1859 the Fergusons lived at 148 Duane Street, New York. In the Commercial Advertiser of New York in 1830 appeared the written acknowledgment of this same little Grant Thorburn that he did on the 22nd of August, 1830, at half-past six in the morning, take four bottles of cider from the cellar of Mr. Comstock. Mr. Comstock says that Thorburn was arrested, and that when brought before him he pleaded guilty and threw himself upon his Comstock's mercy. The Philadelphia Tract Society gave Thorburn one hundred dollars to write his recollections of Thomas Paine. Let us dispose of this four feet and a half of wretch. In October 1877 I received the following letter from James Parton. Newburyport, Massachusetts, October 27, 1877. My dear sir, touching Grant Thorburn, I personally knew him to have been a liar. At the age of ninety-two he copied with trembling hand a piece from a newspaper, and brought it to the office of the Rome Journal as his own. It was I who received it and detected the deliberate forgery. James Parton. So much for Grant Thorburn. In my judgment, the testimony of Mr. Thorburn should be thrown aside as utterly unworthy of belief. The next witness is the Reverend J. D. Wickham, Doctor of Divinity, who tells what an elder in his church said. This elder said that Paine passed his last days on his farm at New Rochelle with a solitary female attendant. This is not true. He did not pass his last days at New Rochelle. Consequently, this pious elder did not see him during his last days at that place. Upon this elder we prove an alibi. Mr. Paine passed his last days in the city of New York, in a house upon Columbia Street. The story of Rev. J. D. Wickham, Doctor of Divinity, is simply false. 
the next competent false witness was the reverend charles hawley doctor of divinity who proceeds to state that the story of the reverend j d wickham doctor of divinity is corroborated by older citizens of new rochelle the names of these ancient residents are withheld according to these unknown witnesses the account given by the deceased elder was entirely correct but as the particulars of mr paine's conduct were too loathsome to be described in print we are left entirely in the dark as to what he really did while at new rochelle mr paine lived with mr purdy mr dean with captain pelton and with mr staple it is worthy of note that all of these gentlemen give the lie direct to the statements of older residents and ancient citizens spoken of by the reverend charles hawley doctor of divinity and leave him with the loathsome particulars existing only in his own mind the next gentleman brought upon the stand is w h ladd who quotes from the memoirs of stephen grellet this gentleman also has the misfortune to be dead according to his account mr paine made his recantation to a servant girl of his by the name of mary roscoe mr paine uttered the wish that all who read his book had burned it i believe there is a mistake in the name of this girl her name was probably mary hinsdale as it was once claimed that paine made the same remark to her these are the witnesses of the church and the only ones you bring forward to support your charge that thomas paine lived a drunken and beastly life and died a drunken cowardly and beastly death all these calumnies are found in a life of pain by james cheatham the convicted libeller already referred to mr cheatham was an enemy of the man whose life he pretended to write in order to show you the estimation in which this libeller was held by mr paine i will give you a copy of a letter that throws light upon this point october twenty seventh eighteen o seven mr cheatham unless you make a public apology for the abuse and falsehood in your paper of tuesday october twenty seventh respecting me i will prosecute you for lying thomas paine in another letter speaking of this same man mr paine says if an unprincipled bully cannot be reformed he can be punished cheatham has been so long in the habit of giving false information that truth is to him like a foreign language mr cheatham wrote the life of mr paine to gratify his malice and to support religion he was prosecuted for libel was convicted and fined yet the life of paine written by this liar is referred to by the christian world as the highest authority as to the personal habits of mr paine we have the testimony of william carver with whom he lived of mr jarvis the artist with whom he lived of mr purdy who was a tenant of paine's of mr byer with whom he was intimate of thomas nixon and captain daniel pelton both of whom knew him well of amasa woodsworth who was with him when he died of john fellows who boarded at the same house of james wilburn with whom he boarded of b f haskins a lawyer who was well acquainted with him and called upon him during his last illness of walter morton president of the phoenix insurance company of cleo rickman who had known him for many years of willett and elias hicks quakers who knew him intimately and well of judge hertel h margery elihu palmer and many others all these testified to the fact that mr paine was a temperate man in those days nearly everybody used spirituous liquors paine was not an exception but he did not drink to excess 
Mr. Lovett, who kept the city hotel where Paine stopped, in a note to Caleb Bingham, declared that Paine drank less than any boarder he had. Against all this evidence, Christians produced the story of Grant Thorburn, the story of Reverend J. D. Wickham, that an elder in his church told him that Paine was a drunkard, corroborated by the Reverend Charles Hawley, and an extract from Lossing's history to the same effect. The evidence is overwhelmingly against them. Will you have the fairness to admit it? Their witnesses are merely the repeaters of falsehoods of James Cheatham, the convicted libeler. After all, drinking is not as bad as lying. An honest drunkard is better than a calumniator of the dead. A remnant of old mortality, drunk, bloated, and half asleep, is better than a perfectly sober defender of human slavery. To become drunk is a virtue compared with stealing a babe from the breast of its mother. Drunkenness is one of the beatitudes, compared with editing a religious paper devoted to the defense of slavery upon the ground that it is a divine institution. Do you think that Paine was a drunken beast when he wrote Common Sense, a pamphlet that aroused three millions of people as people were never aroused by words before? Was he a drunken beast when he wrote The Crisis? Was it to a drunken beast that the following letter was addressed? Rocky Hill, September 10, 1783. I have learned since I have been at this place that you are at Bordentown. Whether for the sake of retirement or economy, I know not. Be it for either or both, or whatever it may, if you will come to this place and partake with me, I shall be exceedingly happy to see you at it. Your presence may remind Congress of your past services to this country, and if it is in my power to impress them, command my best exertions with freedom, as they will be rendered cheerfully by one who entertains a lively sense of the importance of your works, and who with much pleasure subscribes himself your sincere friend. George Washington do you think that Paine was a drunken beast when the following letters were received by him? You express a wish in your letter to return to America in a national ship. Mr. Dawson, who brings over the treaty, and who will present you with this letter, is charged with orders to the captain of the Maryland to receive and accommodate you back, if you can be ready to depart at such a short warning. You will in general find us returned to sentiments worthy of former times. In these it will be your glory to have steadily labored, and with as much effect as any man living, that you may live long to continue your useful labors, and reap the reward in the thankfulness of nations, is my sincere prayer, accept the assurances of my high esteem and affectionate attachment. Thomas Jefferson It has been very generally propagated through the continent that I wrote the pamphlet Common Sense. I could not have written anything in so manly and striking a style. John Adams A few more such flaming arguments as were exhibited at Falmouth and Norfolk added to the sound doctrine and unanswerable reasoning contained in the pamphlet Common Sense will not leave numbers at a loss to decide on the propriety of a separation. George Washington it is not necessary for me to tell you how much all your countrymen, I speak of the great mass of the people, are interested in your welfare. 
They have not forgotten the history of their own revolution, and the difficult scenes through which they passed, nor do they review its several stages without reviving in their bosoms a due sensibility of the merits of those who served them in that great and arduous conflict. The crime of ingratitude has not yet stained, and I trust never will stain, our national character. You are considered by them as not only having rendered important services in our revolution, but as being on a more extensive scale the friend of human right, and a distinguished and able advocate in favor of public liberty. To the welfare of Thomas Paine the Americans are not, nor can they be, indifferent. James Monroe no writer has exceeded Paine in ease and familiarity of style, in perspicuity of expression, happiness of elucidation, and in simple and unassuming language. Thomas Jefferson Was it in consideration of the services of a drunken beast that the legislature of Pennsylvania presented Thomas Paine with five hundred pounds sterling? Did the state of New York feel indebted to a drunken beast and confer upon Thomas Paine an estate of several hundred acres? Did the Congress of the United States thank him for his services because he had lived a drunken and beastly life? Was he elected a member of the French Convention because he was a drunken beast? Was it the act of a drunken beast to put his own life in jeopardy by voting against the death of the king? Was it because he was a drunken beast that he opposed the reign of terror, that he endeavored to stop the shedding of blood, and did all in his power to protect even his own enemies? Do the following extracts sound like the words of a drunken beast? I believe in the equality of man, and I believe that religious duties consist in doing justice loving mercy, and endeavoring to make our fellow creatures happy. My own mind is my own church. It is necessary to the happiness of man that he be mentally faithful to himself. Any system of religion that shocks the mind of a child cannot be a true system. The work of God is the creation which we behold. The age of ignorance commenced with the Christian system. It is with a pious fraud as with a bad action. It begets a calamitous necessity of going on. To read the Bible without horror, we must undo everything that is tender, sympathizing, and benevolent in the heart of man. The man does not exist who can say I have persecuted him, or that I have in any case returned evil for evil. Of all the tyrants that afflict mankind, tyranny in religion is the worst. The belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man. My own opinion is that those whose lives have been spent in doing good and endeavoring to make their fellow mortals happy will be happy hereafter. The intellectual part of religion is a private affair between every man and his maker, and in which no third party has any right to interfere. The practical part consists in doing good to each other. No man ought to make a living by religion. One person cannot act religion for another. Every person must act for himself. One good schoolmaster is of more use than a hundred priests. 
let us propagate morality unfettered by superstition god is the power or first cause nature is the law and matter is the subject acted upon i believe in one god and no more and i hope for happiness beyond this life the key of happiness is not in the keeping of any sect nor ought the road to it to be obstructed by any my religion and the whole of it is the fear and love of the deity and universal philanthropy i have yet i believe some years in store for i have a good state of health and a happy mind i take care of both by nourishing the first with temperance and the latter with abundance he lives immured within the bastille of a word how perfectly that sentence describes the orthodox the bastille in which they are immured is the word calvinism man has no property in man the world is my country to do good my religion i ask again whether these splendid utterances came from the lips of a drunken beast man has no property in man what a splendid motto that would make for the religious newspapers of this country thirty years ago i ask again whether these splendid utterances came from the lips of a drunken beast only a little while ago two or three days i read a report of an address made by bishop doane an episcopal bishop in apostolic succession regular line from jesus christ down to bishop doane the bishop was making a speech to young preachers the sprouts the theological buds he took it upon him to advise them all against early marriages let us look at it do you believe there is any duty that man owes to god that will prevent a man marrying the woman he loves is there some duty that i owe to the clouds that will prevent me from marrying some good sweet woman now just think of that i tell you young man you marry as soon as you can find her and support her i had rather have one woman that i know than any amount of gods that i am not acquainted with if there is any revelation from god to man a good woman is the best revelation he has ever made and i will admit that that revelation was inspired now on the subject of marriage let me offset the speech of bishop doane by a word from this wretched infidel though i appear a sorry wanderer the marriage state has not a sincerer friend than i it is the harbor of human life and is with respect to the things of this world what the next world is to this it is home and that one word conveys more than any other word can express for a few years we may glide along the tide of a single life but it is a tide that flows but once, and what is still worse, it ebbs faster than it flows, and leaves many a hapless voyager aground. I am one, you see, that has experienced the fall I am describing. I have lost my tide. It passed by while every throb of my heart was on the wing for the salvation of America, and I have now, as contentedly as I can, made myself a little tower of walls on that shore that has the solitary resemblance of home i just want you to know what this dreadful infidel thought of home i just wanted you to know what thomas paine thought of home 
Then here is another letter that Thomas Paine wrote to Congress on the 21st day of January, 1808, and I wanted you to know those too. It is only a short one. To the Honorable Senate of the United States, the purport of this address is to state a claim I feel myself entitled to make on the United States, leaving it to their representatives in Congress to decide on its worth and its merits. The case is as follows. Toward the latter end of the year 1780, the continental money had become depreciated, the paper dollar being then not more than a cent, and it seemed next to impossible to continue the war. As the United States was then in alliance with France, it became necessary to make France acquainted with our real situation. I therefore drew up a letter to the Count de Vergennes, stating undisguisedly the whole case, and concluding with a request whether France could not, either as a subsidy or a loan, supply the United States with a million pounds sterling, and continue that supply annually during the war. I showed this letter to Mr. Morbois, secretary of the French minister. His remark upon it was that a million sent out of the nation exhausted it more than ten millions spent in it. I then showed it to Mr. Ralph Izzard, member of Congress from South Carolina. He borrowed the letter of me and said, We will endeavor to do something about it in Congress. Accordingly, Congress then appointed John A. Lawrence to go to France and make representation for the purpose of obtaining assistance. Colonel Lawrence wished to decline the mission, and asked that Congress would appoint Colonel Hamilton, who did not choose to do it. Colonel Lawrence then came and stated the case to me, and said that he was well enough acquainted with the military difficulties of the army, but he was not acquainted with political affairs, or with the resources of the country, to undertake such a mission. Said he, If you will go with me, I will accept the mission. This I agreed to do, and did do. We sailed from Boston in the Alliance frigate, February 1781, and arrived in France in the beginning of March. The aid obtained from France was six millions of liras as at present, and ten millions as a loan, borrowed in Holland on the security of France. We sailed from Brest in the French frigate Resolu, the 1st of June, and arrived at Boston on the 25th of August, bringing with us two millions and a half in silver, and conveying a chip and a brig laden with clothing and military stores. The money was transported with sixteen ox teams to the National Bank at Philadelphia, which enabled our army to move to Yorktown to attack in conjunction with the French army under Rochambeau, the British army under Cornwallis. As I never had a single cent for these services, I felt myself entitled, as the country is now in a state of prosperity, to state the case to Congress. As to my political works, beginning with the pamphlet Common Sense, published the beginning of January 1776, which awakened America to a declaration of independence, as the President and Vice President both know, as they were works done from principle, I cannot dishonor that principle by ever asking any reward for them. The country has been benefited by them, and I make myself happy in the knowledge of that benefit. It is, however, proper for me to add that the mere independence of America, were it to have been followed by a system of government modeled after the corrupt system of the English government, would not have interested me with the unabated ardor it did. It was to bring forward and establish a representative system of government. As the work itself will show, that was the leading principle with me in writing that work, and all my other works during the progress of the revolution, and I followed the same principle in writing in English the rights of man. 
after the failure of the five per cent duty recommended by congress to pay the interest of the loan to be borrowed in holland i wrote to chancellor livingston then minister for foreign affairs and robert morris minister of finance and proposed a method for getting over the difficulty at once which was by adding a continental legislature which should be empowered to make laws for the whole union instead of recommending them so the method proposed met with their future probation i held myself in reserve to take a step up whenever a direct occasion occurred in a conversation afterward with governor clinton of new york now vice president it was judged that for the purpose of my going fully into the subject and to prevent any misconstruction of my motive or object it would be best that i received nothing from congress but to leave it to the states individually to make the what acknowledgment they pleased the state of new york presented me with a farm which since my return to america i have found it necessary to sell and the state of pennsylvania voted me five hundred pounds of their currency but none of the states to the east of new york or to the south of pennsylvania have made me the least acknowledgment they had received benefits from me which they accepted and there the matter ended this story will not tell well in history. All the civilized world knows that I have been of great service to the United States, and have generously given away that which would easily have made me a fortune. I much question if an instance is to be found in ancient or modern times of a man who had no personal interest in the case, to take up that of the establishment of a representative government, and who sought neither place nor office after it was established that pursued the same undeviating principles that I had for more than thirty years, and that in spite of dangers, difficulties, and inconveniences of which I have had my share. Thomas Paine An old man in Pennsylvania told me once that his father hired an old revolutionary soldier by the name of Thomas Martin to work for him. Martin was then quite an old man and there was an old presbyterian preacher used to come by there by the name of crawford and he sat down by the fire and he got to talking one night among other things about thomas paine what a wretched infamous dog he was and while he was in the midst of this conversation the old soldier rose from the fireplace and he walked over to the preacher and he said to him did you ever see thomas paine no well he says i have i saw him at valley forge I heard read at the head of every regiment and company the letters of Thomas Paine. I heard them read The Crisis, and I saw Thomas Paine writing on the head of a drum, sitting at the bivouac fire, those simple words that inspired every patriot's bosom. And I want to tell you, Mr. Preacher, that Thomas Paine did more for liberty than any priest that ever lived in this world. And yet they say he was afraid to die afraid of what is there any god in heaven that hates a patriot if there is thomas paine ought to be afraid to die is there any god that would damn a man for helping to free three millions of people if thomas paine was in hell tonight and could get god's attention long enough to point him to the old banner of the stars floating over america god would have to let him out what would he be afraid of had he ever burned anybody no had he ever put anybody in the inquisition no ever put the thumbscrew on anybody no ever put anybody in prison so that some poor wife and mother would come and hold her little babe up at the grated window that the man bound to the floor might get one glimpse of his blue-eyed babe did he ever do that did he ever light a faggot did he ever tear human flesh why what had he to be afraid of he had helped to make the world free he had helped create the only republic then on earth what was he afraid of 
Was God a Tory? It won't do. One would think from the persistence with which the Orthodox have charged for the last seventy years that Thomas Paine recanted, that there must be some evidence of some kind to support these charges. Even with my ideas of the average honor of the believers in superstition, the average truthfulness of the disciples of fear, I did not believe that all those infamies rested solely upon poorly attested falsehoods. I had charity enough to suppose that something had been said or done by Thomas Paine capable of being tortured into a foundation of all these calumnies. What crime had Thomas Paine committed that he should have feared to die? The only answer you can give is that he denied the inspiration of the scriptures. If that is crime, the civilized world is filled with criminals. The pioneers of human thought, the intellectual leaders of this world, the foremost men in every science, the kings of literature and art, those who stand in the front of investigation, the men who are civilizing and elevating and refining mankind, are all unbelievers in the ignorant dogma of inspiration. Why should we think Thomas Paine was afraid to die? And why should the American people malign the memory of that great man? He was the first to advocate the separation from the mother country. He was the first to write these words, the United States of America. Think of maligning that man. He was the first to lift his voice against human slavery. And while hundreds and thousands of ministers all over the United States not only believed in slavery, but bought and sold women and babes in the name of Jesus Christ, this infidel, this wretch who is now burning in the flames of hell, lifted his voice against human slavery and said, It is robbery, and a slaveholder is a thief. The whipper of woman is a barbarian. The seller of a child is a savage. No wonder that the thieving hypocrite of his day hated him. I have no love for any man who ever pretended to own a human being. I have no love for a man that would sell a babe from the mother's throbbing, heaving, agonized breast. I have no respect for a man who considered a lash on the naked back as a legal tender for labor performed. So write it down. Thomas Paine was the first great abolitionist of America. Now let me tell you another thing. He was the first man to raise his voice for the abolition of the death penalty in the French Convention. What more did he do? He was the first to suggest a federal constitution for the United States. He saw that the old Articles of Confederation were nothing, that they were ropes of water and chains of mist, and he said, We want a federal constitution, so that when you pass a law raising five per cent, you can make the states pay it. Let us give him his due. What were all these preachers doing at that time? He hated superstition. He loved the truth. He hated tyranny. He loved liberty. He was the friend of the human race. He lived a brave and thoughtful life. He was a good and true and generous man, and he died as he lived. Like a great and peaceful river with green and shaded banks, without a murmur, without a ripple, he flowed into the waveless ocean of eternal peace. 
I love him. I love every man who gave me or helped to give me the liberty I enjoy tonight. I love every man who helped me put our flag in heaven. I love every man who has lifted his voice in any age for liberty, for a chainless body and a fetterless brain. I love every man who has given to every other human being every right that he claimed for himself. I love every man who has thought more of principle than he has of position. I love the men who have trampled crowns beneath their feet that they might do something for mankind. And for that reason, I love Thomas Paine. I thank you all, ladies and gentlemen, every one, every one, for the attention you have given me this evening. End of Ingersoll's Lecture on Thomas Paine, Part 2. Recorded for you by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, during August 2008.